Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Available in three colors, its thin light design, built-in HD camera, and touchscreen turns any space into your workspace. More at surface.com slash laptop go. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the big event and our Apollo 11 tribute with David Perlman. Loyal listeners will remember we celebrated Dr. Dave's 100th birthday earlier this year. Dave worked for the Chronicle from 1940 to 2017 when he retired, and that was a great party. Dave was at age 98, the oldest journalist working a full-time beat in the country. As he continues to rock his 101st year on the planet, we decided to return to Perlman's Richmond District home to talk about the moon landing. He covered the mission for the Chronicle in Houston, writing three 1,200-word stories for a July 21st, 1969 edition. Here's Dr. Dave talking about the press box mentality and whether he was rooting for the NASA astronauts when he was a few feet away from mission control in Houston. Well, you know, us reporters are very tough people and we don't take sides, but that's really a lot of bull. (laughs) In fact, in fact, of course, it was our team that was up there. And I, you know, I'm not uh, given to sentiment, I don't think, at least as a reporter, but it was, we were cheering for our guys and... I don't know of anybody who wasn't cheering, including the whole population of America, of the United States. Perlman talks about fanboying with Walter Cronkite, who was also in the press room. He tells us what his expense report was like. Perlman bunked for free with the Washington Post, Chronicle, Saving a Buck in 1969. And he talks about the importance of the moment and why space travel is still relevant and worth our country's interest in 2019. We're all really glad we went. David Perlman was and is a delight. We're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Dr. Dave, I want to welcome you back to your, this is your second San Francisco Chronicle podcast. Well, I can't write anymore, but at least I can yak. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm thrilled to be here um, with uh, Steve Rubenstein and Leah Garchik um, just to talk to you a little bit about, uh, you know, we're at the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, and and you had been covering the space program for some time, and we're in Houston at that time, as I can tell from the bylines of the the Chronicle uh, articles that you wrote. When was your first inkling that this might be possible, that we might land on the moon? Did it happen fast, or did it happen kind of slow? I think, if I recall correctly, when we first began the Apollo project, which began with the the earliest orbital flights around the Earth, we knew then that we were certainly going to the moon. That was the purpose of uh, the whole Apollo project. 
And I remember when the first of the Apollo, I can't remember the number, uh, one man in orbit around the Earth, and then two men uh, around the Earth, and then uh, the preliminaries to the actual moon landing. It was all, this was not something that suddenly popped up, oh, let's go to the moon, and lo and behold, we went. No, 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 that took many, many, many years. I don't remember when the Apollo program began, but certainly it was, it followed on uh, on President Kennedy's uh, remarkable commitment, I guess you'd say, uh, which committed us to get there, and we got there. I noticed in reading your stories that you used a lot of superlatives. It was a superlative time, and you called this fantastic, incredible. What they were doing was unbelievable. Some of the some language that reporters don't usually use. You were caught up in the in the majesty of this moment. One, I wanted to ask you if you felt like this was even too incredible for a reporter to cover how did you and and how did you cover something that everybody in the whole world was watching in real time everybody watched neil armstrong take that first step on the moon how do you then write something that's going to be in the next day's paper well a handicap uh, isn't it i was a reporter and i was covering an event and so where i would suspect i don't remember now how many scores, maybe hundreds, no, I doubt it, but certainly scores of reporters like me were in Houston at Mission Control, and we were all reporting an event that we knew, I certainly did, was a historic event. Man's first, man's, human's first uh landing on another another object in our solar system, in this case, the moon. And now we're talking about going to Mars. But it was certainly one of the most exciting uh, opportunities for a reporter uh, to actually be there when the first signals came down from Apollo 11 and uh, to hear hear the voices of our astronauts. That was something that reporters don't often get an opportunity to do, and it was good. It wasn't harmful, it wasn't a murder, it wasn't a conflict. Uh, Yes, sure, we were in some competition with the Russians, but we got there first, although they had been in orbit first, but it was an opportunity for a reporter to be part of history, I guess, or covering a bit of history. Did you ever, um, were you ever faced as a reporter with thoughts about whether you were rooting for the home team? Well, you know, us reporters are very tough people and we don't take sides. But that's really a lot of bull. In <laughs> fact, in fact, of course, it was our team that was up there. And I, you know, I, I'm not uh, given to sentiment, I don't think, at least as a reporter. 
but it was we were cheering for our guys and I don't know of anybody who wasn't cheering including the whole population of America of the United States what was it like um just being in that space with all those reporters, did they give you pretty good access? And were there a lot of other reporters there? What, what was the reporting of it like? Well, I remember, or at least my recollection, which may be faulty, was that the press room was enormous and was covered with desks, I would say, what, a s- scores, certainly not hundreds, but scores of reporters from all over the world Each had a desk, each had a typewriter, one of those modern inventions, uh, and each had a a whole pile of Western Union paper, and we wrote paragraph by paragraph, and Western Union, uh, Western Union, uh, Western Union uh, messengers wandering up aisles, picking up copies, of paragraph by paragraph on Western Union paper and carrying it to a central station where Western Union had a bunch of teletype operators which typed who typed our stuff uh, destined, in my case, for the Chronicle. And there must have been scores of other reporters. And I do remember, though, at the front of the press room sat his eminence, and he really was an eminence guy, and that's Walter Cronkite, who was recording, reporting on the events as they took place and broadcasting it over, I think it was CBS probably. But Uncle Walter was, in those days, the voice of science, as well as everything else. But we were, we were scribes, so we were writing as colorfully and yet as accurately as possible. Do you wish you could have just taken a selfie with Walter Cronkite? I know the technology wasn't there yet. But. <laughs> well, the, the technology for Walter was there. The technology for us was a, a typewriter and a Western Union. Yeah. Uh, although I must say, a couple of the big distinguished papers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they had their own teletype operators. Uh, and I was lucky enough, since I arrived at, at uh, Mission Control without any place to sleep, so fortunately a friend of mine at the Washington Post uh lent me a bed for a few nights while I was covering that. I'm a little bit alarmed that the Chronicle didn't have a bed for you um, <laughs> at the in Houston. <laughs> um, what what was it like? What was it like coordinating with the Chronicle? Did you have a lot of um, instructions from the Chronicle, or, or were you disconnected from them? I well, I had a telephone. I had my not a computer, but. Uh, uh, what shall I call it, uh, uh, a typewriter 
and uh, I guess you don't have to call it a typewriter, a telephone. Yeah, that's what they had. I had a marvelous, wonderful, newfangled object called a telephone, and I could talk to the my editors at the Chronicle every minute, every day, uh, and then the stories I was writing uh, on a typewriter, that's all I used, was a typewriter, and then again, as I said before, handing the typewritten copy to a Western Union operator who sent it on to the Chronicle. Did you? But you didn't have a telephone that you could carry in your pocket, you, did you? you? Or you must have used pay phones or in your hotel room? I think, I think I spent a lot of money on a telephone connection to the Chronicle. It was a press room, and every reporter had a telephone. Uh-huh. Uh, and I don't know what the telephone bill was, but I remember we had to pay the space agency some amount of money for the telephone connection. Did it, did it blow your mind that you're using this telephone and this typewriter and this system to get your story to the Chronicle, and these three men are landing on the moon? I mean, just as a human being, did it, did it, did it blow your mind that this was happening? I, I'd like to say that it did blow my mind that it was happening, but it didn't because what blew my mind was uh, to make sure that the Western Union guy was not going <laughs> to screw up my copy. Right. Uh, you know, I was covering a story that in that sense was no different than covering a fire in Berkeley. Get the story written, then get it transmitted to the paper. Uh, the romance, the drama was there in the back of your mind, but the drama and the feeling that you were had were participating in a dramatic event came somewhere unconsciously at the time, but much better the next day when you were reminiscing about it with your colleagues. Had you met uh, Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins before the... the... We had an opera, yeah, we had a... They were not disembodied astronauts. They were people we had a chance to interview at first hand uh, before in the days before the mission started, the mission began, uh, but we never, I never had an, any intimate relationship uh, with any one of the three. I had known some of the earlier astronauts uh, whose names I'm afraid escape me now, but some of the early missions, the first man to orbit the Earth Alone, John Glenn. John Glenn. I, was, I remember meeting him. Thanks for reminding me. It's a long time ago. But, yeah, a couple of those guys I met, got to know a little bit, liked them, thought they were amazing. I was amazed, certainly. I couldn't have done anything that they did. Uh, and, of course, their, their technical knowledge made me regret that I never took physics in high school. 
Was this incredible passion that the country shared at the moment of the Apollo 11 landing, was this maintained? Now, they, they canceled Apollo 18 and 19 for lack of money, and some were saying lack of interest. People were starting to complain when Harrison Schmidt was driving the car on the moon that it was that they were preempting their soap operas, and they didn't like the fact that their soap operas were getting preempted by this guy driving a car live on the moon. And then, of course, we have not gone back to the moon in this, those intervening 47 years. And we've stepped back. We've had the space shuttle program. But have we? has this passion that you wrote about 50 years ago been maintained, or have we let it slip away? I'm, I'm afraid to say that today the the excitement about landing on the moon has long since disappeared in the psyche of the American public and probably in the psyche of everybody else, all the other nations uh, who are conducting space research. Uh, getting humans out into space is no longer something on which about which we gasp and uh, the truth is what was it apollo 17 the last mission uh, it, it's uh, there was a decline people got used to the idea oh another mission to the moon and as you know congress wouldn't put up the money and the voters didn't support putting up the money and so it became routine. Uh, every space story, every mission, first mission to a new to a planet, not necessarily a landing, uh, orbiting Saturn, for instance, and discovering the objects, the moons of Saturn, uh, and the uh, penetrating the rings of Saturn, those are, uh, those are space missions which uncover mi mysteries that man, I mean humans, have puzzled over for centuries, for millennia, and now we've learned about what they are. But <laughs> if it were possible, to bridge the enormous distances, I don't think people today would put up the budget money to be able to send a human out there, even if it were feasible. The distances, of course, are much too great. But we're, not, we're too sophisticated now. We're too bored with the whole idea, which to me is a deep regret. Did Which you is, ever entertain any of the, there were thoughts, there were people, just around the time of the moon landing, there were people who were complaining about problems on Earth, that all this money was being spent for the moon landing. Did you have any patience with those? Did you have any truck with there? Well, there are always going to be people who don't want to spend money on anything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, fortunately... Congress was willing to reflect the majority opinion of the people on Earth that Apollo 11 was indeed worth it. 
and that the subsequent Apollo missions uh, were also important enough. And, and we are still with unmanned, naturally, unmanned missions to the other planets. Uh, I can't say that we're abandoning our exploration of space. No, we're not. Uh, yeah, the scientists would love to spend more, but I'm not, I don't think the NASA budget is, is uh, something that people are not supporting. Congress is supporting a reasonable amount of research, and I think that's great. Hooray. Would we have gone to the moon if we weren't trying to beat somebody? And is, if, is trying to beat somebody a good enough reason to do it? Well, obviously, I think we went to the moon to beat the Russians. Uh, that's partly a, a uh, mistake, but it's all mixed up. Beating the Russians is healthy competition. Beating the Russians because we want to prove that we've got better space weapons uh, is ridiculous. So there's a little bit of each competition. There's nothing wrong with that. Do you remember the excitement 50 years ago? I mean, even in your family, you, you probably had children at that time. Yeah. Um, were they excited? Was San Francisco excited? What what was the readership uh, feeling? Well, I had no idea about the degree of excitement. I know that the stories I wrote before, during, and after the landing of Apollo were on page one of the Chronicle, and that must indicate that our editors... Uh, thought there was something pretty exciting about it and that there was pretty high level of readership. And indeed, there was. So I certainly uh, got plenty of feedback from readers uh, during and after the Apollo mission. And that continues as long as I worked on the Chronicle. Dave, I, my kids don't think I'm cool. Like what I do, if I review a movie, they don't think that's cool. Maybe I interview like someone on the Golden State Warriors. They think that's a little bit cool. What about your kids? Go, being in Houston, being in Mission Control, was there a little bit of a buzz there? I think you're cool, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I was doing was pretty damn cool. But uh, my kids, well, when they were little... They simply resented that Daddy wasn't around when something was happening. And a couple of other missions, not space missions, but a couple of uh, times when I was with a bunch of scientists away from days and in one or two cases even weeks, uh, the kids didn't like that. Yeah. My wife didn't like that. Uh, I was the only one who had a hell of a good time being out there where scientists were exploring new new aspects of life here on Earth. But that's a lot different than being away for a few days. The kids, yeah, they listened to Daddy on the radio, uh, not for Apollo 11, but they read what Daddy wrote uh, like everybody else was reading the Chronicle. 
was Anne as your late wife, was she as turned on by this whole enterprise as you were, by the magic of it? Uh, that's a hard <laughs> question. Was my wife uh, glad that I was there? Yes. A little annoyed that I was away for several days? Yeah. <laughs> but a uh, combination of both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, she was pretty excited, as I was. You can't help but get involved in the excitement of a pioneer mission, a mission of that has never been done before. That excitement can't can't help but get into your bones when you're covering it. Can you be excited and thrilled and overwhelmed and still be objective? I think all reporters are that way. All reporters right now are covering the, some of the problems uh, in Washington uh, with the uh, <laughs> with with the fight over priority between the Senate and Miss Mrs. Pelosi. Uh, pe- people covering that are are. Uh, are certainly covering it with a certain amount of excitement uh, and objectivity, I hope. But what reporter doesn't have an opinion? What reporter doesn't have a feeling of participation? Uh, It's a combination of both. A reporter has to be part of a mission, part of an event, and objective enough to write about it objectively, no matter what his or her uh, personal feelings are. You wrote uh, you wrote three stories on that day, three forty-inch stories, which is a huge load. We all know. I mean, it seems impossible. Number one, do you remember it being a really busy day, um, and 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 just really? really cramming to get those stories in? Yeah, it was a pain in the neck. Uh, writing 40 inches in uh, a few minutes is a very hard job for any reporter. And uh, you're working as fast as you can. You're trying to convey the mysteries that are being uh, penetrated, uh, the dangers involved, all of that in 40 inches, as you say, if that's what indeed, indeed what I wrote. Well, that's a lot of copy. And uh, uh, feeling, feeling the excitement and communicating that excite, uh, excitement in as decent prose as possible that's what a reporter does for a living. Well, I, I'd like to read your your lead on your, um, I think, main story, A Triumph of Science and Skill uh, by David Perlman, science correspondent, Dateline, Houston. This was the most astonishing technological feat in man's history. Two men walked to the surface of the moon, scooped up samples of its clinging, stickly, cocoa-gray soil, and planted scientific instruments there to probe the fundamental nature of the solar system. 
Their bulky 183-pound multi-layered moon suits protected them safely. Their lunar TV camera brought their mission of the world clearly, and their scoops dug priceless samples of moon rock for the voyage home. The entire Apollo climax, in fact, was achieved with unbelievable perfection, a triumph of engineering skill and precision. Did I write that? You did. I thought you did real well. Pretty good. My English teacher would have been proud. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously. Uh, Yeah, that's what I wrote, but that's what all reporters try to do is to convey what's happening and its importance and its, its, uh, uh, what shall I say, the excitement of it. Uh, I'm glad I wrote it. It's a pretty good lead, if that was the lead, uh, and uh, and I that's what I hope I'd like to be able to do now, but it's a little late in life to try. Well, when you got back, what was the first question that your family and friends asked you? You mean when I got back to back San Francisco? To San Francisco, yeah. How did I get to eat what I ate? <laughs> what? what what was the food like when you were in this big room and sitting at the typewriter and oh there were, if I remember correctly there were places where you could get a hamburger or something like that I can't remember exactly but I would say yeah the family said uh, yeah where did you sleep and what did you eat uh-huh. that's what they always say <laughs> sure especially my wife she worried if I were going to lose weight. <laughs> was it hard coming back? You just covered the moon landing, and then I don't know how the Chronicle yeah. worked then, but right now it's like maybe you got a weekend shift and have to go cover the street fair or something. Right. Or did you do your time card? Did you do your time card? Well, the, fir- the first question I had when I got back was, uh, do I get overtime? <laughs> Did they give you overtime? Did you get overtime? I don't remember. And I don't think you're bothered about that. Yeah. I think most reporters were very pleased to be able to cover a story like that. It was it was a piece of history. And to cover a piece of history is always a privilege for any reporter. Is it one of your favorite moments when you look back at your career? In terms of, yeah, it was one of my favorite moments in the sense of covering a single event, and and there it was. I mean, I've had other stories which were much more exciting to cover, only they were long events. Uh, I've been on several expeditions where writing the expedition writing about the expedition took was something that lasted for several days uh, that's a different kind of story than this fast breaking there was one moment you were in space the next moment you landed they landed landed on the moon uh, that's an event that uh, only happens once in a lifetime. 
David, you went to other launches, actual launches, and you must have found yourself in the company of a flock of reporters who were by then familiar to you that were a group of people that were interested from around the country, whatever papers could afford to send people, to in covering the space thing. Was there a camaraderie among the flock of re- science reporters, or was there competition, or what? Yes, uh, indeed. You got to know quite a few of the reporters whose beat, in a sense, was uh, at that, in terms of what we're talking about, whose beat was space, covering space. And I've, yeah, some of my good friends over the years uh, have been people like Walter Sullivan, John Noble Wilford was another on the Apollo team, and we've met and had good times together over the years in which we've covered similar stories or the same stories together, uh, and sometimes we even help each other out. That's what I was a interested. taxi cab, for example. But not information. <laughs> nah, <laughs> no. Uh, no, I can remember a couple of times Walter Sullivan and I, who were very close friends, and boy, sharing information was not especially either of Walter or me. <laughs> but... <laughs> that didn't matter that we did it, that we couldn't get together and be together a lot of times. We were in China together for, uh, oh, I don't know what it was, 10 days, two weeks at one point a long time ago, and I never saw what jo- what Walter was writing, and he never saw what I was writing. But that didn't mean that we didn't have a drink and dinner together when it was all over each day. Well, I uh, really appreciate you coming on and sharing some memories with us, Dr. Dave. It's always a pleasure to see you. Well, it's always a pleasure to be talking to you guys. Uh, At this point, I'd like to be covering the next moon landing, but I'm afraid I won't be there. We won't be around. In fact, I won't be talking into this machine, this remarkable microphone. Yeah. Well, you are an excellent podcaster, Dr. Dave. I want to let you know that. Well, thank you. Where is... I don't know where... Why don't you come on back with us to the office? There's a couple of stories, uh, uh, and the deadline's coming up. Well, all I can tell you, it's not... The phone is ringing. It's not an exclusive story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you all for for joining us. And uh, once again, it's always a pleasure. And I had such a great time reading your stories uh, from the moon landing and uh, look forward to to reading more of your stuff as I'm digging around in the archive. It's always a pleasure to find your work. Thank you very much. This was really fun recalling it. And there's a lot of other stuff in my life as a reporter that have been fun and fascinating and at times of some significance, I hope. All right, thank you.
You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guests, Steve Rubenstein and Leah Garchik, and our guest of honor, David Perlman. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke, and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album, Community. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S. So did you ever wish you were an astronaut, Dave? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I never had any ambition like that.